0: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Sofa Football Podcast. In today's episode, we talk to global football journalist and author, James Montague. From our sofa, to your sofa.
1: As usual, it's the duo of Adam Bond and Sam Brownsword. We're joined by James Montague and he talks to us about Qatar 2022 Middle Eastern football, plus some unbelievable stories from his new book, When Friday Comes. So, uh, James Montague is with us on the podcast. First of all, James, uh, would you be able to tell us um, a little bit of your background And uh, what inspired you to write the book, uh, When Friday Comes?
2: Uh, Background. Well, I guess, well, I'm from Essex, as you probably tell from my accent. Although, when I go on the BBC World Service, my mum keeps telling me. Um, And uh, my accent changes, uh, apparently, when I go online, because my dad always taught me, you know, you've got to talk proper when you're in uh, a light company. So, um, uh, but I'm from Essex and uh, kind of grew up there, went to university, studied politics, didn't really know I wanted to be a journalist until I did, I did a, I mean, it's, you know, it's 10 years ago now, but I did an unpaid internship at the New Statesman. Uh, but it was fantastic. I met this, um, the deputy editor there was a woman called Christina Adone, um, who some some of you might might have heard of. And she's a, kind of a well-known Catholic writer, writes for the Telegraph. It, it doesn't really like football at all, but she um, she gave me a brilliant bit of advice, which was, you know, it's so tough to make it in London, which is basically where the media is based. But, I mean, in the UK, to get a staff job, almost impossible go abroad. Mm. And that's exactly what I did. I kind of applied for hundreds of jobs, got nowhere, and then out of nowhere, saw this advert for Time Out Dubai, um, which I found, I didn't really know where Dubai was, and i kind of astounded they even had a Time Out magazine. And it was for, like, the shopping and nightlife editor's job, and I just didn't think you'd ever get it. And I had to write a food review, um, wrote, wrote a kind of, like, terrible 300 word review wife it was terrible on because uh, I'd never did a food review before and then ended up um yeah ended up in Dubai like two and a half weeks later they gave me a telephone interview and you know I mean I've always been interested in politics and international politics so I knew a little bit about you know uh you know the politics of the region in terms of, mm. kind of Iraq and, and and other areas like that but didn't know anything about the UAE really um but landed there and Started working as a journalist, and because I love football, it was impossible not to, you know, try and find out more about the local league. Like any city I go to, I try to watch a football match, even before as a journalist. And hmm. you know, I, I ended up in the UAE, and then it just—it just was this crack in this universe that I didn't know existed, and it was—it it, it was kind of like this epiphany when I went. I, I remember the, the first time, I thought that there was something quite unusual here that I should really be writing about was. Um, when I got there, one a friend of mine took me to a UAE uh, World Cup qualifier in Dubai and they were playing North Korea and you know, it's not often you see, you know, I, I, was for me, I'd never seen a North Korean person or team or anything outside of North Korea. Mm. So we went along to the, to the match, uh, the Al Ali Stadium, which is, you know, on the outskirts of town and there were, there must have been about 2,000 North Koreans in the stands and because the UAE had been knocked out and North Korea were, I think they were still in it, for, they could still qualify for the next round. Um, they, uh, yeah, they, they had all these fans from somewhere. And I thought, like, there's no North Koreans in the UAE. Where the hell have these people come from? And it was, it was, it was, it was the most, still one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. Like turning up a whole stand full of North Koreans, the rest of the stand completely empty. Um, and they had all these security guys who weren't looking at the football. They were looking at these uh, these fans who were all dressed in like traditional kind of peasants outfits. Um, and you tried to talk to them. They wouldn't talk to you. And they were, they were screaming. They were kind of screaming at the wrong parts of the game when nothing was happening. It was kind of really strange. It was as if they were kind of told they had to, um, you know, shout at certain times. And then they just, you know, after the game, I can't even remember. I think North Korea lost but qualified for the next round. And afterwards, they just all filed out in silence uh,
1: mm. onto
2: these waiting buses with bars on the windows. And to this day, I have no idea who they were, where they came from, where they're even going to next. Um, but really, after that, I just was like, well, you know, this is this is something that not a lot of people get to see. And I think it's something that I want to see more of, pretty much.
0: Mm. Fantastic. Great. Brilliant. So you've written this book, When Friday Comes. Um and it's out, obviously, in shops now. Um, could you tell people listening what a little bit about it and um, what inspired you to write it?
2: Yeah, well, uh, well, the book's called When Friday Comes: Football, War, and Revolution in the Middle East. And um, I guess when I went to the Middle East, and um, as I mentioned, when I went to Dubai. What what kind of inspired me to write it was I found very quickly it's quite an alien place to go and go and live, uh, especially in the UAE. It's very you know, it feels like you know somebody's built a settlement on the moon. You know, it feels like people shouldn't live there. It's so inhospitable and hot, and there's no—it's just sand. You know, there's nothing there. They've built this gleaming kind of metropolis in the in the desert. You know, hmm. and uh, you know it's a very alien place, and it's, know, it's a less glitchy version of Blade Runner, I guess. You know, and you and you get there's all these people thrown together. It's kind of multicultural without any integration. So it's a kind of very strange place, and I found it very. Um, disorientating. So I found football was a really, you know, for me, like keeping contact with with teams from home and local football teams in the UAE, it was a it was a way of grounding myself. And I found through that, you know, it was kind of a window and an opportunity to kind of find, you know, I'd go to a cafe and it'd be Egyptian run cafe, but they would still show, you know, Premier League football and there'll be lots of other people of different cultures watching Premier League football. And it was a re- it was a, it was kind of a, a something that allowed you access to other people and gave you, you know, you met other people and it, I don't know, it kind of assuaged you homesickness in some, kind of, in some ways. But when, well, I was looking, reading the local press and every time I'd come across a local football story, not just in the UAE, but in other countries around the region, it seemed to me that those stories weren't just, you know, these crazy, you know, foreign football stories. They seemed to really encapsulate and boil down whatever the main political or cultural issue was of the day. Mm. You know, so if you could have understood... This football story, you kind of understood you know the basics or at least the, some of the, some of the core issues that were affecting that country so the the first one that I remember really vividly in my mind was the Yemen national football team and it was it was a throwaway line I remember in the Gulf Times uh, it was a Reuters story, but it was in the Gulf Times about how uh, the Yemen national football squad had to pull out of the Asian of an Asian games qualifier because the entire squad had failed drugs tests. And it wasn't because they were taking drugs or cocaine or anything like that. They were on this drug called CAT, which is a local drug, which 80% of the population chew, which has basically decimated the local economy. Um, you know, it's 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 turned Yemen into this, essentially, I feel like a, a narco-state, really. I you mean, you've got the majority of the men in that um, population chew this drug and are completely for seven, eight hours a day, kind of useless. You know, you just kind of lay around. I mean, imagine if you had, like, 80% of any city just smoking weed constantly. I mean, nothing would get done. And it was, it was kind of pretty much the same with, with Yemen. You know, you go there, but everybody had, you know, it's a very tribal country, and everybody had guns. It's one of the most highly armed countries in the world. So, for me, this story of this football team and how they, you know, you know, basically had failed this drugs test, kind of, it was kind of a way into this... You know, to explaining something about Yemen. So I went to Yemen, met the kind of FA who realized it was a problem and they had to cut it down. And there, there was this Elliot Ness character who was out there to try and stop um, all, all the players from chewing cat. And he said, we're going to ban players from chewing it. You know, it's so bad. Cause it's really bad for you, this drug. You know, it's really, you know, it really you lose all your teeth from it. And, you know, and, and it kind of really affects your heartbeat, heartbeat as well. So, they ended up taking, you know, uh, following this guy around for a few days in Yemen. It was incredible to go to Sanaa, which is this kind sort of ancient, um, you know, city, kind of almost an alien planet in a way, you know. And um, and in the end, they ended up going and chewing cat with this same guy, who even he couldn't get off off the cat. You know, it was so culturally ingrained he couldn't even kick the cat either. So, um, so kind of. I, had this story and I just thought, I looked at other countries in the Middle East and, and it was exactly the same. In Israel, I went to Israel and uh, you looked at the, the local football teams and you realised, you know, all the local football teams have got their roots in some political movements. So you've got the Hapoel teams, and Hapoel means worker in Hebrew, and I mean, you know, you've got uh, the Hapoel teams who all, you know, come from the union movement and still have this left-wing um, socialist imagery and they could kind of have had this identity even if even if that's eroded somewhat in the politics of the club and you've got Beitar teams which are right-wing nationalists very religious and when you look at israel you think of it as just you know a, a kind of unified entity against the palestinians or you know protecting itself against the arab world but actually when you get down there you realize that zionism has been this huge kind of process of immigration that's mm-hmm. brought you know tribes from around the world that might share judaism as a common thread but actually you know you have the ashkenazim from from europe you have the yemenites you have the you know the 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 mizrahim from the wider um arab world and and actually it's it's just thrown a lot of like, very um different cultures together and and that and that there's there's a lot of friction in Israeli society that I wouldn't have known about, a lot of people wouldn't have known about if it wasn't if, if you didn't look at the football rivalries. When you see Maccabi Tel Aviv play Beitar Jerusalem, or if you see Beni Saknini, which is the team of the Arabs, there's twenty percent of the population of Muslim Arabs, you know, um, left behind after the creation of Israel. And, you know, when they when they play Betar Jerusalem, you know, you see these, these fissures and these frictions at the heart of Israeli society. And a lot, a lot a couple of Israeli writers have said, you know, you shouldn't really be highlighting that. But for me, actually it makes Israel a more human place because it's, you know, there's a, a, the flaws in a place are as relevant as, as, as the positive aspects of it. And to me, it just, it, it made it feel like a more normal state. Whereas, you know, a lot of people see Israel in a very different way. So yeah. So for me, when Friday, it's a very long answer but for me. <laughs> When Friday comes, was a way of trying to explain the Middle East through mm-hmm. football, which was this common thread that everybody loved, and it was the number one sport everywhere you went. And you know, it allowed me to just understand the Middle East, and then eventually write a book that tried to explain it in a way that I hope would be a lot more accessible than if I just went around as a as a foreign correspondent mm-hmm. writing it. And if I was walking around as a foreign correspondent, I just wouldn't have got the access to the kind of um, to the people and the societies that I did because. You know, I found that football was a kind of back door into a lot of a lot of organisations and a lot of countries. If I was going going as a BBC correspondent, I might be, you know, I'd been prevented from going to a lot of places. But I said I was a football correspondent. They're like, oh yeah, I'm a Liverpool fan, or Brilliant. you know, I think I explained when I was at the. The Blist event, you know, one of the one of the best examples I had was when I went to see uh, Al Ahed in, in Lebanon, which was the this Hezbollah football team. You know, funded by Hezbollah. Essentially, they denied it, but I mean, you know, they're they, were, they were, all intents purposes funded by Hezbollah. All the people who were involved in the club were, you know, were Hezbollah members. A lot of the players were paid up Hezbollah members. Um, you know, I turned up there, and if you turned up as a as a journalist for the New York Times, I mean, you'd be you'd be pretty, you know, it'd be pretty ballsy move to do that. But I turned up writing about football, and they are like, you know what, I'm a Liverpool fan. And they will tell this 40-year-old Hezbollah member, t- telling me how much he loved Gerrard, <laughs> and how much he hated Wayne Rooney, because he played for Manchester United. Wow. And I was just like, you know, that's pretty, <laughs> that's, I don't, I can't imagine that would have happened in any other hmm. way if it wasn't for football.
0: <laughs> wow. Fantastic. Right. Well, I mean, like, I, I've read, I've read most of the book now, and it's really fascinating, and I'd really recommend to people just because it fills your head with this knowledge that you knew it was out there, but you've never really gone to research it, and it really compiles it all nicely in a comprehensive way, and I really enjoyed reading it.
2: Oh, thanks, it's great. Best lovely to
0: hear it. Um, so right. get out of bed for, right? I mean... <laughs> yeah. Uh, before I get on to Blatter's comments today about Qatar, yeah. um, I want to start off with the bidding process around the 2022 World Cup, yeah. and in the book you talk about this academy called Aspire, yeah. which was promoted by Palais and Maradona um, for financial reasons. Can you tell us a little bit about Aspire for people that don't know, and how, how did it build up this bidding process? How was it used to Qatar's advantage?
2: I mean, the Aspire Academy was my first uh, experience of, of Qatar. I went there in 2004 for the opening of it. And, and what it was, um, at the time, Qatar already had the inklings of, you know, this, this grandiose vision of itself in the world. Um, you had Al Jazeera, which was which was really, you know, funded by the Emir, changing the whole landscape of... Um, actually, I'm just going to close the, close the talk, uh, So you had... Um, it was changing the whole landscape, really, of the media there, and obviously if you control the media in the Middle East, or if you don't control it, at least you set the agenda, I mean, that's a very powerful uh, powerful thing, but through football, um, they had this idea, they wanted to get to the World Cup, and they invested heavily in, in what was then the Qatar, Star, uh, the Qatar League, or the Qatar Stars League, and mm. um, by... Spending big money, bringing big name players out there. So I went out there to to meet uh, uh, Desai, who'd gone out there to play for one of the local clubs, and they had loads there. The De Boer brothers came and played out there. battistuta uh, uh, alas, uh, they weren't paying Pellet to play out there. It was just <laughs> to open up the uh, the Aspire Academy. But they had this idea that that you know, if you if you bring all these players in, eventually it will work in the league. It will rub off. The players will get a lot better. And Qatar will qualify for the World Cup, and qualifying for the World Cup for a country the size of Qatar—one of the smallest countries in the world—you know—it's a massive thing. It's, it's, Mm. it's, you know, World Cup qualification. You can see it for smaller nations. It really, you know, it's an imprimatur of quality. You are a nation. You know, you. Yeah,
0: I picked that up from the book. It was like every single chapter, sort of spearheaded to the World Cup qualification. It was sort of measured not only as national pride, but as this sort of measure of success for the domestic league as well.
2: Well, it it, re- it really is, you know, and um, but but Qatar, was, you know, and the UAE had it as well a little bit, you know, but they didn't, they they didn't quite have the long term thinking that that Qatar did, because mm. you know, uh, eventually, I mean, basically that failed. You know, they brought in all these players, the, the standard didn't actually go up, and Qatar didn't qualify for uh, two thousand six. World Cup finals, and and um, they actually tried to buy in a lot of players by changing their nationality, which they, which them and uh, Bahrain had done in track and field for quite a few uh, players. And I think Aylton was the, the most famous example, who was scoring goals in the Bundesliga, and they, tried, they were going to pay him a million quid or a million dollars. Um, and FIFA eventually changed the naturalisation laws, partly because... Um, Qatar was was it was being very good at trying to manipulate them, but um, in the background they also had this Aspire Academy, which is this incredible uh, complex in in Doha, which um, yeah, you know, not just football in lots of other sports. You know, it's got it's it's just a state of the art facility, and what it is, it get, it takes young uh, men and women who um, you know and try to bring out their talent and give them the best possible chance of success and it's not just and what's interesting is not just for qatari uh footballers or, or athletes it's also for uh, regional athletes and footballers and also most controversially for um basically kids from developing countries that wouldn't have any kind of chance of making it otherwise also this is this is what they would say so they have um you know these these football dream projects where they they basically have outposts in uh, if I remember rightly, Senegal I think there's one in Thailand hmm. one in Paraglide, Honduras, I think, Costa Rica I think I mean basically wherever there was an ex-co member that yeah. would have to say on where the World Cup was in 2022 <laughs> there happened to be an Aspire Academy you know I love there. that
0: thinking it's fantastic
2: I mean it's it, you've got to say that, that that is that is forward thinking on, on a I mean if the English FA you could adopt some some of that kind of Machiavellian mm. uh, way of thinking. I mean, we'd have no problem. I I don't I don't think that Qatar got the World Cup through bribery and corruption because I think they realised that there would be so much scrutiny of the process for them that just one false move and the entire and it would just because the stakes are so high for them in making the World Cup qualifying for the World Cup and hosting the World Cup as part of their um you know uh, you know. Strategy of as a country to become, you know, a coming out party onto the onto the full stage. I don't actually think that they did that. What they did was they manipulated the process very well, uh, just by playing just within the rules. And what they did was they set up these Aspire Academies, which are now basically taking the best talented players from that region and from those countries and taking them to Doha where they're being trained up and then eventually the, the theory is that when they're fully fledged or you know on the way to being a decent footballer or a high jumper or whatever they go back to their home countries. Mm. Um, but they have the choice to be naturalized you know because since Qatar changed uh, since FIFA changed the rules on um, naturalization of players you know obviously if you've spent 10 years living in Qatar and you come from Senegal where the government hasn't given a damn about you or your life mm. but Qatar has giving you an education, your family home, you know, um, the quality of life that you could only dream of. Why so much a one-way Qatar, decision, you know. And so for me, I mean, a lot of people see it as a sinister thing, and I think there is definitely a sinister angle. And a lot of African football writers I speak to are livid that the Qataris kind of hoovering up this new generation of talent that could be like the new Drogba could be Qatari, you know. Um, and it kind of there's a hot opens up all sorts of questions of when do you become, you know, if you, if you do move to another country, when do you become you know a citizen um, and yeah. when don't you which is mm. something you know i mean i think eduardo when he played for croatia i think he had you know many of those same questions as well um but you know it it, it was very clever how they did it and i think that this was certainly a spire was used as a way of um you know improving the football infrastructure in the countries of those ex co members and it must have impressed them and obviously they voted for it you know yeah. um, why platini voted for qatar i mean that's again open to open to argument because as, as uh, France Football and other newspapers and James Corbett who whose company published this book kind of uh, 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 looked into you know this meeting that Platini and Sarkozy had and whether he was asked to vote for Qatar because of business interest between the French and the Qatari government mm. I mean who knows what's true I mean obviously we can't say for sure and Platini said that he's going to sue anybody that makes any direct link to it so I'll try not to give you, a, try <laughs> to get you the trouble with them um, <laughs> But, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, again, it just shows, you know, football and, you know, it's part of the geopolitical, you know, matrix now. And so so for me, Aspire, something that I saw in 2004, opened by uh, Maradona and Pele, and at the time I thought was, like, just the craziest thing. I mean, who the hell's ever going to hear of Qatar again?
0: Yeah. And then I mean. for them
2: to win the 2022 bid, and that being... Part, you know an essential part of of getting that bid, I think you know it was you know you've got you can't help but be impressed really by the, that that long term thinking
1: mm. Mm. I'd like to um just get your opinion on the bid itself and whether you think it'll go ahead uh, just to read what Seth Blatter said this afternoon, he said the executive committee will follow my proposal to move the twenty twenty two World Cup to winter as they can't air condition the whole country. Do you think it'll go ahead in Qatar, and if not, why? And could there be an alternative at all?
2: I suspect. I mean, for the one, for the one. I mean, for me, it would be brilliant if um, Qatar had the World Cup in 2022. I think I'd probably retire off the back of it. But you know, um, I I really think there would be um, a brilliant World Cup in the Middle East, and I can understand FIFA. You know, looking to somewhere like the Middle East, as it has done with Africa, as it has done with Asia, um, and, and as, as it did with the USA, looking at new territories and thinking, you know, actually, football is a global game. And that's the way, if you look at the way that FIFA has been run in the past 20, 30 years, you know, it's gone away from a Western European mm. um, mindset with the rest as a peripheral uh, set of teams around, you know, these richer nations towards being a more, actually, probably a fairer, more democratic, more globalized. Um, organization, so you can see why they did it. The problem is with the Qatar bid is that you know it is based on a technology that didn't exist at the time, doesn't exist now um, and you know Qatar has to prove that this cooling technology, this zero carbon cooling technology, which by the way, if it worked and which they said they would roll out you know uh, low cost towards other developing nations or to, towards developing nations would be a legacy that no sporting event has ever given the world. It would be an incredible legacy. Mm. you know, to give, It would change the lives of millions of people around the world yeah. if if this World Cup bid was the driver for this R&D uh, that went into producing this. The problem is it's not there, and I don't think they can hold on long enough to stop the ensuing power battle between Seb Blatter, who I don't believe did vote for... Qatar and Platini, who's on the record as saying that he did vote for it.
1: Um just very quickly, yeah. um when they when they made the bid Qatar and they said that they had this technology which wasn't invented yet but obviously will contribute to the, the bid, Yeah. Um, do you think they do you think they actually thought that what we're saying here can't actually come to fruition, but we'll say it because it sounds better and will set us apart from all the other nations.
2: No, I don't think so, because I mean the fact is that if 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 they didn't believe it, they would produce a World Cup where hundreds of people would die. You know, so I mean, it would be it would be absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I've I've lived through three personally lived through three golf summers, right? And <laughs> it is you know people talk about forty degree heat and forty five degree heat and how difficult it is. I mean. You know, I've been in the UAE when it's been 50 degrees, right. and that's quite regular. Mm-hmm. And if you go out for 15 minutes in that heat, you die. You know, right. you, you you won't, you know, it's just, it's it's as inhospitable as going to Finland in the middle of winter, where it's minus 25. You know, you you spend 20 minutes unprepared in that, you're dead. You know, I, I, I think they genuinely believed it. I think they have, a, they, at the time of the bid, they had a very small... Um, they have a working kind of model of what it would be like. And, it, and you know, you can see their heart was in the right place. I don't believe that they were disingenuous about it. Right. Um, you know, I think there's a lot that's been written about Qatar, which I think actually really borders on quite quite racist stuff, you know, there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with the beard, you know, talking about these kind of like savages in the desert who kind of, you know, oh, no gay people are going to be allowed at the World Cup and all this. You know, the, the Emir, and, you know, true, they, they don't have democracy like they do in the West. Now, I'm no, uh, uh, you know, moral relativist. I'm not going to say, well, you know, but there are some certain important things that we've to remember is that the royal family of the UAE um, are in charge of, you know, the least democratic... Country on Earth, yet they fund Manchester City, and very few people seem to mention that fact. Actually, the royal family of Qatar, I believe, are quite—you um, know—if uh, not, maybe the word "enlightened" is the wrong one, uh, because you can see that they're—you know—they've they funded an opposition movement in Syria or helped to fund an opposition movement in Syria, which many people would question whether their behaviour is a moral one. But in terms of you know everything that he's done, uh, the Emir until he. Recently handed over to his son, which is another issue entirely. I don't think. It, I don't think the timing of Blatter's comments are in any way a surprise. If you look at the fact that there's just been a peaceful application of of the Emir, emir Atani towards his son, um, who's 33 years old. You know, if there was a time to make this kind of, mm. you know, but um, drop this bombshell about a Winter World Cup, then it'd be now when the country was at its weakest. But um, so no, I don't think they. I don't think they did it on purpose. Um, but, you know, I think that Qatar, you know, of all the Gulf states is actually probably the the most liberal, if that's the right word to use. I mean, it's obviously an Islamic state, but, you know, they've, they, they've been moving slowly towards democracy. It's a flawed process, but it, it, it's certainly better than it is in the UAE or Saudi Arabia or even Bahrain, if you look at what's been happening
0: there.
2: Mm. Um, you know, if you look at, uh, the, you know, the fact that Al Jazeera... You know they've they've really reshaped the kind of media landscape. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, you know, looking at Qatari politics, i I'm just I, I just see it as a, you know f- from the outside world they see it as just you know a a Islamic theocracy in a way, and it could that you know that that is just far more nuanced than that. You know, um, and f- so I don't think you know I, I, if there was a Winter World Cup, they, they'd host a brilliant one. If the technology is there, they can't host the summer one. Hmm. It's just impossible. Mm-hmm. um so what's so, the
0: alternative
2: well the the alternative is move it to winter which i think blatter knows cannot happen you know they can't move it to winter world cup for two power, reasons one it. is yeah. it would absolutely um you know infuriate the european leagues mm-hmm. and the problem we've got at the moment in in football and i'm sure it's something you've known, i mean maybe maybe you guys are too young to remember this but you know there's been a real shift in the past 15 years away from international football and fans Moving away from international football, mm. club football has become absolute supreme. And um, you know, I think it, whether it's an issue, it's, I mean, certainly in England, anyway. I mean, in Germany, the national team is still you know revered, and and for a player to play for your national team is still the highest accolade going. Whereas you get the impression with English players that might not be the case. Yeah. Um, but certainly with fans, you speak to anybody now. It's like you know the actual number of England fans. who, You know, for me, when I was growing up, international football was the absolute pinnacle. And maybe that's because I'm a West Ham fan, and we had no chance of ever winning the Champions League <laughs> or whatever. But you know, for me, international football was what I what I got out of bed for. What I loved m- most about football. Mm. And creatures like me just don't really exist anymore. You know, I speak to ki- I speak to twenty year old kids, and they're just like, no, you know, no. You know, all, all all international football does is basically exploit my players and make them more tired and make it harder for us to win the Premier League. Uh, yeah, I couldn't
0: uh, agree more.
2: Uh, you know, and and you know, this is a this is a major problem, and and the power that European football uh, clubs have, um, you know, and then you add this to the mix, this kind of this winter World Cup, where the Premier League gonna have to change every aspect of their. Um, organizational structure maybe even turn it into a summer game as FIFA and UEFA have been talking about you know why don't football be a you know chain completely turn the, the, the calendar on its head um, in a way it kind of makes sense but they're not going to accept it and they have the power uh, to, to make it so so I mm. think Blatter knows that the issue another issue is that the Winter Olympics are due to be held around that time mm. and yeah. you know the IOC are going to be livid if that happens so, so, I think Blatter knows.
1: Can that, you see? Can you see a quite a big rift between UEFA and FIFA on this, and oh, then and then Platini yeah. using that to his advantage to take on Blatter at the next election?
2: Yes, this is this is where the battle line is being drawn. Blatter knows that if he moves the Winter World Cup, it's not going to happen, and so the Qatar bid is dead in the water. It's, I think it's a way for him to essentially. You Know kill the beard, but in a way, that's kind of what a lot of European clubs want, and what the European clubs kind of hoped was that you that the Platini would be their man. You know, he was a football man, he'd understand the game a bit better. Mm. Um, and actually, it's what it's Blatter that's given it to him. Blatter has far more international support within FIFA than Platini has, and Platini, you know, I mean, I speak to people who are in the game, uh, in on the administrative side of things, you know, and you know, they're, they're scorecard of his performance at UEFA that is very very poor I mean you only have to look at what's happened on his watch when it comes to Gibraltar becoming a member of UEFA you know and the people I talk to is like they're astounded that he, on his watch he's allowed you know the Spanish Federation to basically what they view is to be treated in an appalling way by allowing you know a tiny a tiny not even a nation but like a what would you call it an overseas territory of Great Britain mm. to be allowed to become a member of Of UEFA. Now, personally, I think they should have been allowed to be a member of of, of UEFA. I think anybody that, that, you know, just because the legal framework was there, they passed everything they needed to before UEFA changed the rules on you having to be a UN member before you become become a member. So that the legal case was there for them. But, you know, that's happened. Like, you know, Platini dropped the ball and allowed this to happen. So there's a lot of unhappiness at at, at, uh, Platini's reign at UEFA. And if Blatter does decide to run for another term, then he'll beat him, mm. and no doubt about it. But uh, but the Qatar World Cup and the Winter World Cup, and who will be the next? Who 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 will be given the host the chance to host the 2022 World Cup? I think will define their battle. And I think I think Blatter or Blatter's proxy, whoever it is that he has down in his uh, in his stead, if he feels that he's too old to go on, you know, I think that's um, that's what the battle line is going to mm. be
0: true. Um, from from reading your book, um, one out of the many figures in it that stood out to me was the Syrian national goalkeeper, Abdel Basset Sarut. Yeah. I was intrigued as to, has there been anything more that has developed? For those who don't know, could you explain it for them? And I've been searching through Google and I can't find anything more on him.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, if you go to YouTube, there's many um, videos that he's a video testing the gave and um, one of the things that I tried to write about, I mean, to, just to explain who Abdul Basit Al Sarou is, um, he's a, a former Syrian under-20 goalkeeper um, who s- played for the for the Olympic team as well, and um, Syria very nearly qualified for the 2020 uh, for the 2012 Olympics, and they had a fantastic victory against uh, Japan, mm. but in the background to this. Campaign obviously war broke out, uh, essentially a civil war broke out, um, and these players were not allowed to play in Damascus. They were travelling abroad, and Abdel al Sarut was uh, comes from Homs, which at the time was you know being pacified by the Assad regime, and he felt that he couldn't play in that team wearing a Syrian flag and one that officially you know was, was, a, was a part of the Syrian state, and he decided. He had a fantastic singing voice, so he decided to go and sing um, in the main square in Homs, and he started attracting huge crowds. People would come to see him, see him sing revolutionary songs and anti-regime songs, and it became very clear that he, he, he was, a, he was a, a figurehead for the revolution. He was a voice for the revolution. Mm. And the Assad regime realized this and, and basically hounded him um, at first, he was kind of able to move quite clearly. You know, people would put his videos of him singing these revolutionary songs. And there's a video on YouTube where he's, he's singing in front of thousands of people. Um, and you know, and then basically after that, they, the Assad regime had been trying to kill him. So there was there's there's another video on on YouTube of him after he'd survived uh, an assassination attempt, and he was injured, and he was mm, you know, basically know about what, what had happened to him, and. He was moving from house to house, uh, and I went to meet the the Syrian Olympic team. Actually, there's a story for the New York Times about them before uh, one game they played. It was a final group game, which they won, but they then had to go to a playoff, and then eventually they they didn't qualify, um, unfortunately. But um, you know, and these players, he, he was he was kind of the ghost in the room. Mm. You know, um, talking to the squad in Amman because they couldn't play in Damascus. You know, there's was, there's. Was, these shady figures, who certainly weren't anything to do with the Syrian FA, who I'd met before, um, who were there to, you know, I mean, you know, spooks from the Syrian intelligence service, who were there stopping journalists from talking to anybody. Um, I managed to speak to a couple of the guys, you know, and they're like, you know, this guy was our friend, and we wish him well, and we hope, we hope that he he comes home. But it was it was very difficult, you know. You could tell that this guy and his his absence was just this. This huge hole in the squad. Mm. Um, unfortunately, there's been no word from him since. I, 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 a couple of weeks ago, I went um, and had a look around and made some phone calls, and there's there's been no sign of him. The, the, the one person I spoke to said that there's been some rumours that he's been killed, but again, you know, the bloodshed in Syria is so great at the moment yeah. that who, who knows where he is? I mean, I heard some horrific stories about the it, You know, the, the facilities in Syria at the moment that are, you know, these torture factories, whichever you want to call them, where God knows what's going on there and who, how many people are in there. Yeah. You know, it's a horrific, horrific situation. But this guy, you know, there's a couple of players that I've met on my travels, you know, another guy who, who played for the Libyan national team, which I mentioned in the book, who fought uh, for the rev- for the revolution against Gaddafi. You know, and know, then came back to play for the team in a crucial game they played against Zambia, where they qualified for, mm. for the African Nations. You know, and I might not necessarily agree with their views or who they fought for, but my God, to to you know to give up everything, to give up because I remember Abdul Basit Sarut, you know, saying that he's um, I've got travel, I can leave the country, I have money, but it's not about whether I can do it; it's about whether my mother can do it, yeah. it's about whether somebody else's mother can do it, and for me, that is that's that's bravery that's that sacrifice and you know it, again even if i don't agree necessarily with, with somebody's point of view you know for somebody to do that i think is is you know is incredibly you know something that needs to be written about and, needs, and the world needs to know about it
0: yeah um just finally um i'm dying to know um now, after you've spent all this time in sort of a Middle Eastern football environment, yeah. how it's changed your view of the Premier League when you watch a match or go to a match and is it rather a dull affair now going oh, to a Premier League it,
2: it's, game? It's um I still get excited I get excited when I watch you know West Ham. To well, yeah, well, I mean I don't know. I mean, <laughs> watching West Ham under Allardyce is a little bit like watching a machine crank into gear. You know, you know that if you put you know, X into funnel A, <laughs> Y will come out of funnel B. And in a way, it would be like going to like, the science museum and watching, like, these old uh, steam engines when you see them turn on, you know, working and thinking, wow, that's a magnificent thing, but you can't watch it for any more than a few minutes if we go and play with the electricity balls in the room next door. You know, and it's a little bit like that watching West Ham, you know. Um, You know, it's kind of an impressive, powerful thing, but... um whether it's enjoyment anymore, I don't know. But it's my team, and I, you know, the, the, the for me. It's not necessarily about the quality of the football. It's about uh, I, I always think that football is, uh, you know, it's like it's like the perfect novel in a way. It's the perfect, you know, you have this ninety-minute kind of opera that's being played out, and you have every human emotion in, in in the middle of it. And so it doesn't matter whether it's a Premier League game or a non-league game or you know two teams kicking it out in a park. There's there's some Drama and dynamic, and some narrative that 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 is unique to it. That you know is compelling. Otherwise, anybody would only ever watch the best football. Everybody would only ever watch Champions League football. No one would watch lower league football. Yeah. So if it was all about the best and quality, and uh, so so yes, in that respect, I still watch it and I still love it. I mean, it is it is very sterile, even compared to what I remember. Like you know, when I first started going to football, I was ten years old, and I'd still go to the North Bank at West Ham and it would be five pounds to get in. And I remember standing, and I remember watching West Ham Millwall once, and the most frightening things have ever, probably more frightening anything I've seen in the Middle East, to be honest. (laughs) Um, And, um, you know, and what, what what, what I've taken from the Middle East, and seeing change, it's just how lucky we are to have that football, and how much we and the players take that for granted. Mm. You know we have this, we have this, we have this, we have this fabulous league, and unfortunately, you know, all the a lot of the has been taken out of it. But we are incredibly lucky to have it. You know, I mean, I wouldn't. It, it might be interesting to write about Syrian football, but I wouldn't swap Syrian of course society yeah. or the football league for for what we have. Uh, I complain a lot about Premier League football and about professional footballers and agents and and international football being kind of put. You know. But and a lot needs to change in in the Premier League, I think, especially, but in European football in general. But um, you know, it's a, there's almost a little bit of pride as well yeah. when you go somewhere, and you know we're not very good at many things anymore. Um, but the Premier League is, you know, for 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 better or worse, is an incredibly successful thing. And actually, if you think about the interaction that most people in say Iraq has with the West, I mean. It's pretty bad. I mean, you know, we're talking even before you know sanctions against Saddam. Talk about the legacy of colonialism, whatever. I mean, there is there is no reason on this earth that an Iraqi would have anything good to say to an Englishman. But football, you know, the Premier League. It, 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 I mean, doesn't make all those bad things go away in any way. But you know, it's it's a it's actually it's it's actually one of the things that probably paints us in a better light than we deserve.
0: Yeah. That's fantastic, James. Um, we really
1: enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, thank you very much for your time. And, um, no,
2: no worries. It's a pleasure. it I mean, you know, I mean, most people can't stop me talking about this kind of stuff. No, so. yeah, it's
1: <laughs> excellent to uh, hear someone's views about it because it's not talked about enough. And uh, when you know so much about it, I think more people should know. You can follow James on Twitter. What's your, what's your Twitter name again, James?
2: Uh, it's at. Well, it's a bit of an accident. I'm, I'm half Polish, and I thought I was yeah. writing in my my full name, and my middle name is Piotr, yeah. which is Peter Polish. But it turns out that's now my handle. So my handle is at James Piotr, which is J A M E S P I O T R.
1: There we go. So, um, I've been know, wondering how to say that for ages.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, to be honest, it's it's very regional because obviously it's sort of a Russian thing as well. To have Piotr. So sometimes, it's Piotr, so even myself, is it, is it Piotr or is it Piotr? Okay.
0: <laughs> Yeah, we've really enjoyed talking to you and obviously all of what you've been talking about is in your book and like I said, I, I haven't been able to put it down and it's just filled my head with this knowledge about something that is really sort of alien to to me and it's just been great reading it. We hope you've enjoyed the latest Soap Football podcast with special thanks to James Montague. Don't forget, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at SoFootball and also visit our website, SoFootball.com.